Today, I want to start this episode by giving you all a riddle. What do a rotating jail and ghosts have in common? The answer is, they make a great episode. So welcome back to another fact-based paranormal episode from your favorite open-minded skeptic and host, me, Michelle. You can join me on the Paranormal Exposed podcast every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal tale and I present to you what is real, what is not real, and what might just be in between. I'll be presenting both the historical facts as well as all the paranormal reports to see where the two meet. Join me in exposing the paranormal. This week's episode will dive into all the historical and haunted reports associated with the Squirrel Cage Jail located in Council Bluffs, Iowa. You might be thinking that this is just your normal run-of-the-mill jail, you walk down aisles, look into cells, blah, blah, blah. If you thought that, then I have some pretty good news for you, as this jail is completely different than most jails you will see or hear of. The tale of the Squirrel Cage Jail starts in Indianapolis, Indiana, where two men there were working on a new design for a jail and actually patented that design in 1881. The premise behind their new design was to better protect those who were monitoring the prisoners while also requiring less staff to do so. It would also be a maximum security prison and was known as a rotary jail. You might be wondering what a rotary jail is, as I know I was, because before I looked into this story, I had never heard of such a thing in my entire life. Basically, there is a cluster of cells that form a circle, and each cell was shaped like a piece of a pie, eventually making a full circle. Each cell in the cell block was connected to the same plumbing and gear system. And the gear system would actually rotate the entire block of cells, hence the name Rotary Jail. These jails quickly gained popularity as it would be, first of all, difficult for anyone to escape one of these prisons because until rotated into a certain position, the prisoners would be unable to access the door to their cell at all. So no picking locks, no breaking through the gate, nothing. Another thing is the cells actually rotated inside of another huge cage. So they only had that one door to exit or to enter. Quite a few of these rotary prisons were actually constructed in the Midwest as they were secure, but more importantly, they were cheaper. You could run the prison with one guard monitoring all the prisoners versus multiple guards needed on each floor in other prisons. And the money saving factor is what enticed Iowa to build the squirrel cage jail. This story starts back in the 1800s in the county of Pottawatomie, Iowa. 
The town was actually getting larger and they were requiring more infrastructure. So it was decided that they would need a courthouse and a jail in order to really better service the town. And the town quickly got to work. In 1888, Council Bluffs completed the courthouse and the jail, though, won the race in being finished with the completion in 1885. The jail's official name is actually Pottawatomie County Jail, but it is widely known as the Squirrel Cage Jail. I must admit, I'm pretty happy that I can call it this nickname because I cannot imagine having to say Pottawatomie throughout this entire episode. I feel like that word is a tongue twister in itself, and I will admit that I had to practice saying that quite a few times before I recorded this episode. The reason it is called Squirrel Cage Jail is because of the actual look of the inside of the prison. It is said that it basically resembles a trap that you would catch small wild animals in, such as rabbits or squirrels, hence how it acquired its name. Though I did also see some rumors about the name also being linked to the large population of black squirrels in the county, but I don't think this would be correct because all the rotary jails are basically known as squirrel cage jails. The rotary jails are also sometimes referred to as human rotaries or lazy Susan jails for obvious reasons. This jail does seem pretty unique to me in the fact that from the outside, it actually doesn't look like a jail at all. It looks like a really pretty gothic kind of four-story brick house. This isn't the only unique thing about the prison, though, because while there were as many as 18 rotary prisons built in the Midwest, The Squirrel Cage Jail was actually the only three-story prison ever built. Now, I did say three-story jail, even though it is a four-story home, and you will kind of find out what's on the fourth story here in just a moment. Each of the first three floors of the building featured a block of these pie-shaped cells, with ten cells in each block. So we had 10 cells on each of the three floors. This prison could house up to 60 inmates at a time with an age range as young as 14 years old. There were two inmates in each cell, which meant each floor of the prison could house 20 inmates at a time. And the toilet wasn't really a toilet. It was basically a cutout in the back wall that you could sit on. So make sure you check out social media for the pictures as it was pretty crazy looking. And I can't imagine two men being crammed into one of these jail cells as they were pretty tiny and not even square cells. Remember, they're pie shaped. The first and second floor cell blocks were for those people who were serving time for more minor offenses 
or those who were just kind of waiting for their court date. These floors would house men, women, and there was a juvenile section as well. Though most of the juveniles would be held in a section on the second floor. The first and second floor cell blocks were for those who were serving time for more minor offenses, such as maybe not paying your debts or things like that. Or it could even have been for people who were just basically waiting for their court date. These floors housed men, women, and children. Though the kids were all actually held in the juvenile section, which was on the second floor. The third floor of the jail housed prisoners who had done some pretty heinous crimes, including murder. Also on the third floor was the infirmary, which was actually connected to an apartment for which an actual doctor lived in on site all the time. The assistant jailer also had an apartment on the third floor as these people worked full time, seven days a week. The fourth floor was reserved entirely as an apartment for the head jailer and his family to live in. And the front portion of the prison also had areas for those supporting the prison, including offices for those who watched the prisoners. There was a kitchen and a trustee cell. For 84 years, the jail housed inmates until the year 1969. This is when the government actually stepped in and decided to close the prison, stating that it was no longer fit for humans to reside in. It was decided that the old jail would be demolished, but the local historical society would have no such thing happening at all. When the bulldozers arrived to demolish the prison, the historical society members actually stood in front of the jail in protest, and it worked. They won out, and the jail was saved. Just two years later, in 1971, the Park Department of Council Bluff gained possession of the jail so that they could preserve its historical integrity. And the next year... In 1972, the building was added to the National Register of Historic Places. Not much happened with the jail until a few years later in 1977, when the Historical Society finally took over ownership and the reins to preserve this historic place. The Historical Society actually still owns the jail even to this day. What they did is they made sure that it was safe for people to visit the jail, but have also kept it historical and accurate. You can even still see the names of prisoners that have been scratched into the walls of their cells, and even some names that are on the ceiling. The Historical Society does run the prison as a museum, so you can happily tour its grounds and all floors. It's pretty reasonable for a family to visit as for an adult, it's only $10 and there's various discounts such as military, student, senior discounts, and there are cheaper prices for kids. 
In addition to the regular tours, they also do host paranormal investigations, overnight lock-in events, and they do even have professional investigators that you can join in if you sign up well in advance. What I will say is don't expect a nice, clean, fully restored jail because they have kept it as original as possible, i.e., it is basically looks like it did when the jail closed. They have done some setups like putting various mannequins in places and other artifacts, but, you know, it's an old jail. It's kind of run down. It's not very clean, but you'll get the gist of the history and maybe some other stuff. Because it is a really interesting museum But in addition to the museum are the spirits of prisoners who supposedly never left. With that thought, let's get into the paranormal report. The Squirrel Cage Jail is 123 years old as of the time of this recording in 2023 and housed criminals for over eight decades. This old jail really has it all. Full-blown apparitions of men, women, and even children, creepy noises, and more. There is an overwhelming sense of sadness and despair when you enter the grounds of the prison. And it really seems to seep from the entire wall of the jail and into your soul, not being able to kind of get out of that stinking feeling while you're there until you exit the grounds. Why are these apparitions and haunted reports happening in this old prison? Is it because of how people were treated? Did people die here? Well, you're about to find out, as I will be covering the haunted reports more in depth and where they come from. Let's talk about the Rotary Prison It was a really great concept, but in practice, it was absolutely horrible. Within two years of this prison being built, the community quickly realized that they had made a big mistake in adopting the Rotary-style prison. The mechanism that the prison relied on was a 45-ton drum that sat on a 3-by-3-foot base sitting in soil that continuously shifted during any movement of the gears. This design was horrible for a few reasons. First off, it was very dangerous to the inmates, as they would sometimes get their legs or arms caught in the cell bars while the rotary was turning, which did not lead into anything good for those people's appendages. This resulted in a lot of injuries. Some people would even do it on purpose so they could be sent to the hospital and get a chance to get out of the cell and maybe a chance for escape. That sounds pretty terrible, right? Well, it only gets worse. Remember, the only way to access an inmate's cell was to hand crank the gears until the door lined up with the inmate cell. 
The question is, what happens when the gears are jammed? Well, this meant that no one could give the inmates access to any medical support and any food or water was really difficult to get into them, if at all. The government and taxpayers heard of what was going on inside the jail and they rallied for a change. The problem was, while people wanted a change, no one wanted to pay for it, which is basically, I think, the issue we have with most things in the world these days. So they didn't want to pay for it from the government funds. Taxpayers didn't want to pay more money. So everyone just kind of swept the issues under the rug and figured, well, it's cheap. It kind of works. So let's just keep going like we're going. This was how things went trucking along until 1960. One of the prisoners in his cell suffered a major heart attack and ended up passing away. The staff saw this and began rotating the gears to help the man and get him out. The problem was the gears ended up jamming and they couldn't actually get to his cell to get to him and offer any medical care at all. This led to the man's body lying in the cell for two days, decomposing with no one able to reach him. Imagine not only this poor man's body laying here decomposing for two days, but imagine the health impact on everyone else around him. They had to smell this. They had to not receive food or water for those two days. This was really the last straw, and no one could really keep looking the other way any longer. So what they did is the fire marshal disabled the gears permanently so they could no longer rotate. But what they didn't do is shut the prison down. They kept the prison going, but they couldn't keep all the prisoners in their separate cells because they couldn't access them all without the gears turning. The problem was there was nowhere else to put them and no more staff to put on site. So basically, the prison decided the best way to deal with it would just be kind of letting the prisoners do whatever they wanted as long as they didn't leave the prison. They could wander the halls of the jail with little monitoring, and the guard would mainly just sit in his office watching TV as he didn't actually want to be in there with any violent people, and they really only agreed to go into the prison if they had other armed people with them. In many cases, prisoners were actually just tunneling out and escaping during their time, with some of them just coming back to sleep at night and get free meals. Finally, when 1969 hit, the government decided enough was enough, and the jail was deemed, quote, unfit for human habitation, end quote. As you can tell, things were not great here at the Squirrel Cage Jail. There was injuries, deaths, and more. Did these things lead to the hauntings that we know today? Well, let's find out. 
The most active floor of the jail is the fourth floor, where the warden's apartment would be. And allegedly, one warden named Bill Foster, who worked here in the 1950s, he actually refused to use the apartment altogether because of the paranormal happenings. And he actually chose to just sleep in the less nice second floor apartment that was offered to the second in command. The most common report from the fourth floor is hearing footsteps walking around when no one could possibly be up there and an investigation supports no one is there. The spirit is sometimes a little more forceful and will actually pull on people's hair or even pinch you. Whistling can sometimes be heard from the fourth floor as well and is thought to be the spirit whistling while he continues his job in the afterlife. Doors can be heard opening and closing and sometimes even slamming open and shut. There are other strange noises that are often reported as well as unexplained lights that come from that floor. In addition to this, many people on the fourth floor report feeling like someone or something is following them and watching them all the time. Though maybe the most frightening is many people report seeing a full body apparition of a male spirit. All of these accounts seem pretty creepy, but those who have experienced them state that the spirits actually seem pretty friendly. Though I'm not really sure what gives them that impression, as they don't really say why, but apparently their ghost is a version of Casper the Friendly Ghost. The question is, why would a spirit be haunting the fourth floor? Remember, this is a place, just an apartment for the people who work here not a place where prisoners would have ever been. There are two main theories of this. The first is the spirit is that of a man named J.M. Carter. He was actually the man who was the construction manager for the jail project, and after construction was complete, It is said he took on the role of warden and lived in the fourth floor apartment of the jail. He was the first person to live in the apartment and maybe he doesn't want to leave. It is thought that he continues to oversee the prison and the spirits that still remain here to this day. The other theory is that the spirit is of a different warden named Otto Gouda. After ending his 25-year stint as a butcher, Goodoff took over as warden of the jail in 1949. He and his wife Ada actually lived in the fourth floor apartment for about eight years until he retired in the fall of 1957. Otto continued to live in Council Bluffs until his passing four years later. Now, neither man actually passed away in the jail, though I did see one unconfirmed report that Otto suffered a stroke in the apartment, and that is actually why he retired. 
But again, I couldn't confirm this. And he would have been in his late 60s at that time, which is kind of normal retirement age anyway. I'm not sure why either spirit would be haunting here just because they worked here. I mean, do you think when you pass away that you're going to choose to go back to work every day doing the same thing you did versus just staying at your home with your family, something like that? Just, just saying. Otto may be tied here, though, for another reason. His family has donated many of his personal belongings for the museum, and maybe his spirit is tied to some of these. Let's move away from the fourth floor now, though, as there are three other floors where some pretty wild things happen. My favorite spirit here loves to touch people and jump on them. Yeah, that sounds pretty frightening, right? Well, not if the spirit that's jumping on you is that of a cat. If you are sitting down, this phantom cat likes to jump on people's laps. And whatever position you are in, whether sitting or standing, the cat loves to brush up against your legs. Though no one has ever seen the cat. They just feel it. I'm not sure where this cat comes from. Maybe it was a stray that got into the jail sometimes. Maybe the jailer's family owned a cat or they kept one here to control the rodents. I don't have any idea. Though, I would definitely be way open to meeting this spirit more than probably any other spirit. The other three floors experience quite an assortment of activity. Whispering can be heard throughout the building as well as people laughing. Maybe the ghosts are telling each other a joke or giggling about your new style of clothing because to a ghost of the early 1900s, our clothes would look pretty silly. I mean, women wearing pants, there are skinny jeans, all sorts of crazy nonsense, and you're not wearing a suit or a hat, so you look weird. You can also hear these spirits walking around, people will hear music wafting through the air, and even the sounds of shuffling can be heard, as if the spirits are dancing to that music. Lights often flicker on and off by themselves, and doors are known to open and close on their own or even slam shut. Objects are said to move throughout the building. So for example, you might have left your hat on the first floor, but magically find it on the third floor by the time you get up there. That would be pretty creepy when you are the only one in the building to have moved it. I guess that would definitely tell you that you're not alone. Shadow people are often seen here, and apparently one apparition is actually seen in the actual jail cells. When you see this spirit, it is dressed entirely in gray and wears a really sad expression. The spirit is seen locked in one of the cells with no way out. And what's most disconcerting and sad 
is that the spirit is of that of a young girl. It's thought that the jailers don't just hang out on the fourth floor, though, as remember, we think they're still working. And how we hear that is we can hear their keys jingle jangling around like the officer's kind of swinging his keys as he walks, or maybe they're just on his belt swinging. The other jingle jangling sound is some of the inmates must still be here too, as you can hear their handcuffs clinking together on the metal bars of the cells. One account from some paranormal investigators who stayed the night was pretty chilling, as they were camping in one of the cells and it was pitch black inside the jail at night. Through the pitch black, they heard someone walking towards their cell in what sounded like heavy work boots, like maybe what a warden would wear. That couldn't be possible though, as they were locked in and all of them were sleeping in the cell together. No one else was in the building. But the footsteps walked right up to the front of the cell and just stood there. The group froze, and all of them said that they knew that someone or something was staring at them in the dark. I'd probably pee myself a little bit and just got some chills even telling that story. So I feel like I would probably have a little mini panic attack, if not a full-blown one. When walking around the prison, people report feeling very sad and sometimes even feel someone or something tugging on their clothing. This jail has a lot going on with it, which is why it's been so popular recently for many investigators and has even been featured in various television programs on paranormal activity. There are also quite a number of EVP sessions that have come out of here um, or caught on film and various things of that nature. I will be posting a link on social media to the Historical Society site where there are actually links to many of the paranormal investigations that happened here. So that way you can look at the evidence for yourself and decide what you do or don't believe. Now that we know the paranormal reports, it's time to figure out who may be haunting the other three floors of the Squirrel Cage Jail. Many reports will tell you it's the dozens of deaths of prisoners due to the horrendous conditions here. And yes, it wasn't a great place to be, and people did die here. But surprisingly, not that many people died here in the 84 years of its operation. In fact, there are only four people who are listed to have died here. I mentioned one death already, and that is the prisoner who died of a heart attack in his cell. He's the one that was left there for two days because the gears locked up and no one could get to him, which, let's be fair, is a really, really horrible way to go and really tragic for this man and his family, which is maybe why his spirit is trapped in the prison. Though maybe he's not alone. 
another prisoner who was in one of the third floor cells met a pretty gruesome fate. This prisoner is said to have been leaning out of his cell, carving his name on the ceiling, which was pretty common practice for the inmates on the third floor, and did apparently lead to many being injured when the gears turned in the cell. This man apparently leaned too far over and fell from his cell, falling three floors below to the concrete floor. When he fell, he died on impact. This one actually seems kind of strange to me, and I saw it reported many, many times, though I couldn't find a name for this said prisoner, which gets me because unless the gears rotated to open his cell, he wouldn't have been able to exit his cell, let alone fall three floors down. Once his cell was opened, he'd also be on the ground level. So the only way to fall would be if he climbed into a part of the inner workings of the building that didn't actually offer an escape route. But he wouldn't have been carving his name on the ceiling then. So while this story might have a grain of truth, the way he died can't actually have happened. I will post a picture to show you the ceiling art so you can kind of see how they would stretch their arms from between the cell bars to right on the ceiling. And there's no way that someone could fall while doing that. I also saw a report about one inmate hanging himself, which that theory is reported quite frequently, but again, I have no name or any other further information on that one. The last death, though, is verifiable and was actually one of the officers and not an inmate. On August 25th of 1921, there were a large number of farmers that were forming a mob and wanted to storm the prison. The officers started preparing for this riot, and one of those officers was a man named Claude Dale. Dale was actually really new to the force and had just been sworn in as an officer about three days before this event. During preparations for the riot to get there, a riot gun actually accidentally discharged, and when it discharged, it injured quite a number of officers and took the life of Claude Dale. Maybe Dale is actually the jailer whistling and swinging his keys. And there's also the one to possibly three inmate deaths, which are the reasons we might hear the handcuffs clanging. There is another theory about why some of the spirits are still hanging around here, and I did cover it a little already. And that theory is the personal belongings of the staff members and the inmates. Many family members have donated items to display at the museum. And these items include special things to those people, such as old military uniforms, wedding dresses, and various other items. These items were important to these people while they lived, and maybe their spirits are tied to the jail because they are tied to their belongings still. 
One of the most famous belongings here that is thought to tie a spirit is a noose. It's a pretty macabre thing to have here on display because this noose was actually used to end someone's life. And that was the life of a man named Charles Brown. Charles had been incarcerated at the jail after committing a number of murders and was hung for his crimes in 1962. Charles was actually the last man in Iowa to ever be executed by hanging. And maybe this noose does still tie Charles to the jail to this day. I did see some reports that the hauntings of the jail are associated with where the jail was built. It is said that old St. Paul's Cathedral burnt down and that the jail was actually built over the grounds of where the old church's morgue was. But this is not a true story as the jail wasn't actually built on that site per historical records. The courthouse was. So maybe the courthouse is haunted as well. The Squirrel Cage Jail has a ton of history and a ton of hauntings. And I would love to hear what you think about the jail and its hauntings. Do you think the inmates and the jailers continue on here in the afterlife? And who do you think the girl ghost could be? Because I have no records of a little girl passing away at the jail. Maybe all of these people are attached by their belongings and some of the belongings belong to that small child. I do hope that you enjoyed this episode on the Squirrel Cage Jail. And if so, remember to leave a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, even if you don't listen there. Also, don't forget to visit coffee.com to show your support for this podcast and visit on social media to see the pictures and links associated with this story, including the links to give you some of that EVP and more picture-based evidence. You can follow me on social media with Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, on Facebook following Paranormal Exposed, or feel free to shoot an email to paranormalexposedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you as always for tuning in and supporting this podcast. And I will see you all next Wednesday.